0: The Old Pilot's plain Tales RAF Form 414 Volume 4 After the last tale we left our young RAF pilot wiping the foam of a quart of beer from his lips and receiving his treasured 43 Squadron crest from the Squadron Commander to wear in his flying suit for the very first time. He was now operational on the F-4 Phantom and ready to start working as a fully paid up fighter pilot. You might think that now, officially able to go to war, that his training might have finished, but far from it. In a peacetime Air Force, every mission, every minute of every day was usually spent training in one form or another. So it was, a few days later, on the 7th of December 1978, exactly 41 years ago, I had been out with my usual navigator practicing night intercepts. Scotland often suffered the worst of the storms that came over the Atlantic to pound the United Kingdom in winter, and this one had been no exception. Tony and I had been out over the North Sea attacking and, in turn, being attacked by another Phantom. Now, as we recovered back towards RAF Lucas, we got the word that the weather was pretty wild. It was wet as passing heavy showers went through, but the main problem was the wind. On a wet runway, the F4 had a 20 knot crosswind limit, and with a good thirty-five knots across, it would have been marginal had the runway been dry. The only option, really, was to divert, but my backseater wasn't new to this sort of thing. "'Why don't we put it into the wire?' he asked. The Phantom had first been created for the US Navy. It was primarily a carrier aircraft and was an excellent platform to bring down onto the pitching deck of an aircraft carrier. Its hook was suitably manly, solid and stable, and as thick as my thigh. It very rarely skipped an arrestor wire. Most military airfields, certainly RAF-1s, have arrestor wires fitted to the end of their main runways, and almost all fast jets are equipped with a hook. But, uh, I replied to Tony, I've never done that before. It was true. Doing a wire engagement was normally a last-ditch way of stopping from going off the end of the runway, and nobody had to teach you that. You just put the hook down and waited. Tony was suggesting that we do an approach-end engagement, as you might do if you were landing on the deck of a carrier. Now, I don't want to suggest that what we were considering was as testing as finding the three-wire on a moving aircraft carrier. It certainly wasn't, but it was giving me pause for thought. Tony was all for it, and since he was senior enough, he said, You'll be fine. I'll authorise you. In truth, I think he was just dreading the hassle of a diversion. We let Lucas know what we intended and entered the instrument pattern. The cloud base was down to about 500 feet and they brought us round for a GCA, a ground-controlled approach. In the darkened radar room, the GCA controller was gazing at her two scopes, one showing our position relative to the runway centreline and the other one to the glide path. In a rotatable building near the centre of the airfield were the radar antennas, one scanning back and forth and the other up and down. They only needed to be short range but were very accurate and had a fast scan rate. The whole building could be turned to line up with any of the four runway approaches. I ran through our landing checks. Speed brakes in but out for a flooded or slushy runway – Landing gear down below 250 knots. Fuel check contents and calculate on speed. We landed at 19 units angle of attack, but always had a landing speed calculated to check it against. Flaps down below 210 knots. Hook as required. For the first time in anger, I reached for the hook lever and dropped it downwards. Harness, tight and locked. Hydraulics all 3,000, plus or minus 250 PSI. and is skid on, captioned out. Radar, standby and stowed. As our controller lined us up with the runway, we heard the familiar, do not reply to further transmissions. You're approaching the glide path. Begin your descent now for a 3 degree glide path. You're 9 miles from touchdown. Turn left 5 degrees heading 080. You're drifting right of the centre line. Maintain your rate of descent. I set the big fighter into an 800 feet a minute rate of descent and concentrated on maintaining my speed, heading and descent rate as we were buffeted by the strong winds. Turn left a further 2 degrees heading 078. We now had 12 degrees of drift and reduce your descent rate, you're slightly below the glide path. So the patter continued, only interrupted once we were given a landing clearance and replied that our gear was down. It was always a comforting way to come down in bad weather. Our controllers were good, and they looked after us. If it was particularly bad, we got the gruff but fatherly voice of the SACCO, our senior controller and he somehow transmitted calm reassurance along with his guidance. The landing light in the nose wheel door was bouncing white glare from the clouds, but my head was down, concentrating. As we came out from the ragged base of the cloud, the glare disappeared and I looked for the runway lights. They appeared well to the right, but I resisted the urge to turn and centre them up, as I knew that, In the strong crosswind we needed the drift to stay lined up. The vases, visual slope indicators, were a comfortable red-white showing that we were still on a good glide path and all I had to do now was plant my mighty machine firmly onto the middle of the runway. What happened next is still a bit of a blur. I wasn't sure what was supposed to happen, but I certainly didn't expect to be plucked from midair and thrown down onto the runway like half a ton of bricks. We slammed into the concrete, and in only a few seconds came from about 170 miles an hour to a grinding halt. I extracted my bruised face from the gun sight and realised why the landing checklist said, Harness tight and locked. The locked bit I usually ignored since i liked to be able to twist round in my seat, and a normal landing was pretty gentlemanly compared to this. The RAG team extracted us from the cable and gave us the signal to taxi clear, which I did whilst tidying the aircraft up. In the subsequent debrief I discovered what the problem had been. Very conscious of not dragging the hook through the approach lights, I imagined it would hang quite a long way below the aircraft, not in fact the case. I made sure that I didn't drop below the glide slope when we came visual. Ah, said one of the more experienced pilots. On 09, the wire's a bit short of the instrument touchdown point, so it's best to put it down on the numbers. Lesson learned and no damage done. The RAF Rotary Hydraulic arrest gear is considerably more forgiving than the naval version. We flew up until the 21st of December, and then, with Christmas approaching, the flying petered out as everyone got ready for the holidays. We threw a crew room party for the other sections on the station that supported us so well. The admin Wallers and Bean Counters from headquarters, which we named Handbrake House, our very much loved air traffic controllers, and the many others who helped us out during the year. As usual, we sent a Christmas hamper out to the lighthouse keepers on Bell Rock. This ancient reef lay ten miles out to sea, on the centre line of the runway, Runway 27 a most convenient position and a great marker to use when bringing in a formation for a run and break into the circuit. One would have thought it had been put there especially for our use, but according to legend, the Abbot of Arbroath first installed a bell there to warn mariners in the 14th century, only to have it stolen by Dutch pirates. The rock was the scene of many shipwrecks, as it lies just below the surface of the sea for all but a few hours at low tide. Eventually the fine Scottish engineer Robert Stevenson proposed the construction of a lighthouse on the reef in 1799, and in 1810 it had been completed, becoming the tallest offshore lighthouse in the world. It was built to such a high standard that it has not been replaced or adapted in the 209 years since. It was, however, automated in 1988 and the keepers were no longer required. I always wanted to meet some of them to ask if they minded the very low-level flypast, usually in full reheat, that they were subjected to many times a day as we recovered from our missions over the North Sea. I suspect they loved them, but might have been just a touch deaf as a result. The new year started with some good weather, so we headed out over central and north Scotland to conduct low-level overland intercepts and combat. The snow was lying thick on the ground, and the stark granite that formed the highlands had been covered by a blanket of white camouflage. Our usual landmarks, particularly the lochs, had frozen and then been covered by snow, so they disappeared from view. We took care when the sky was overcast, as the white ground blended in with it, and it became easy to become disorientated. Care was taken to bug the radault at a sensible height, so that, with the absence of visual cues, we didn't drift too low. Then, as February 1978 came round, excitement built as we were to host a visit by the United States Air Force 527th Aggressor Squadron. I had barely 200 hours in the Phantom and I was going to fight some of the most experienced and capable fighter pilots in the world. It was very exciting. They bought a handful of their F-5Es up from Alkenbury, where they were based, and when they landed we crowded around, admiring their exotic paint jobs, which mimicked Soviet camouflage and their aircraft numbers. The aggressor's helmets sported Russian red stars, and they were masters of their trade, but my apprehension at facing them soon disappeared and when we got our first of many briefings. The aggressors weren't there to prove their superiority at air combat, they were instructors in Soviet tactics, and they were there to make us better at facing our expected foe. TB led me out for a 1v1 combat mission, and from the moment we left the ground the lessons began. He taught me something that stuck with me throughout my military career, never waste a moment. As we transited out to the play area, we practised a continual sequence of gentle exercises. We didn't want to waste too much fuel to improve our combat skills. We practised vector rolls around each other, where we barrel rolled around in a continuous spiral, keeping our lift vectors pointed at the other aircraft. We spent time guns tracking each other's in a weave with unexpected reversals thrown in so that we could improve our reaction time and get the gun sight back on as soon as we could. We did slow speed manoeuvres to demonstrate that slowing to fight at the speed of a MiG-21, which was often the aircraft they mimicked, was not good for a Phantom. Whilst I struggled to stay flying, TB flew circles round me. These guys were really at the top of the tree, and it was a pleasure to listen to them talk and then practice the lessons in the air. The F5 was hard to fight, but the hardest thing was to keep sight of it. As they turned in to fight us, we could easily see the plan form of the little fighter, but then they pointed their needle noses straight at us, and in a blink they disappeared. It was like they employed a cloaking device and the next thing I heard was my nav screaming at me to do a missile or guns break as they crept up behind. I fought Kit in a 1v1 and then two of us took on Mark and finally two of us ganged up on their boss, Lieutenant Colonel Leeson as well. It was probably the most informative week I've ever had in my training. The next month saw me down at Bimbrook, fighting the Lightnings of 11 Squadron. Even having transited half the country, I still had more time to play than the fabled rocket ship. With our amazing radar and missile capabilities, the Lightning wasn't really much of a test, even for the 43 Squadron junior pilot. But there was no doubting the Lightning pilot's skill at keeping up with that remarkable aircraft as well as working the radar and keeping a close eye on the rapidly diminishing fuel load. Later in the month, I was targeting buccaneers, escorted by F-15s, and a formation of 14 Squadron Jaguars. I always loved fighting the Jags, and claimed six of them. In the meantime, my life as the Squadron junior pilot had its ups and downs. Had I been the junior navigator... I would have had the pleasure of looking after the squadron mascot, a fighting cockerel called Macduff. He was a vicious beast, but I would have preferred that job, despite the cuts and scratches he inflicted, to the one traditionally done by the junior pilot. I was the coffee-bar officer." My main duty was to spend hours transcribing the squadron's flying hours onto a claim form and then calculating how much money each and every flight was worth in rations. Once this was done, I had to put an order into the naffy for food and drinks to stock the coffee bar and try to keep everyone happy. If you think it's hard to keep an aircraft full of passengers happy, it's child's play when compared to a bunch of whinging fighter pilots and grumpy navigators. But something was about to happen that would take my mind off the world of NifNAF naf and trivia. We were about to deploy to Cyprus, the land of milk and honey, coccinelli and kebabs. But more of that another time. If you enjoyed that, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find that at airlinepilotguy.com.